Today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the word through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like you to think for a moment about the last few decisions that you've made. Maybe some of these were pretty big decisions, like moving, buying a house, getting married. Or maybe they were the smaller decisions of daily life, when to stay home, when to go out, what meals to plan. How did you decide what was wise or the wisest decision to make? Maybe for some of these bigger decisions, you have a whole process that you go through, a pros and cons list. But I think sometimes we don't think about the wisdom that goes into the smaller decisions as well. But even these reflect our values and what we see as wise. We value our health, so we choose healthy meals. We value our friendships, so we spend time with them. Maybe we value caring for creation, so we'll plan to recycle and be conscious about our consumption of certain things. The Cambridge English Dictionary defines wisdom in this way. The ability to use your knowledge and experience to make good decisions and judgments. Wisdom is knowing the best way to act in any particular situation. But the reality is, as you've probably noticed yourself, that we can have very different opinions of what it looks like, of what wisdom really looks like, what it means to be wise. The Old Testament talks a lot about wisdom as well, mainly what's in what's known as the wisdom books, like Psalms and Proverbs. And these often talk about two ways of living. So there's the way of God, 
thoughts, the way of the wise, and the way without God. And we see this in places like Psalm 1, for example. Other well-known verses also capture this link between wisdom and an understanding of God. In Proverbs 21.2, we read, All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. And in Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. True wisdom, according to Scripture, begins with an acknowledgement of and deference to God. And if we consider ourselves Christians, this posture will subtly shape the, we make, the way we make our decisions as well and how we determine our life direction. Our passage today in 1 Corinthians 1 is all about wisdom. It's looking at the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. What difference does the light of God's wisdom make in our world today? I think we'll see in this passage that the wisdom of God invites us to a new way of life and a new way of community. So I'd like to take a look at this text in light of three invitations we see here. First, there's an invitation to humility. Second, an invitation to recognize true wisdom. And third, an invitation to wonder in the sense of marveling at what God has done. But to begin, let's take a look at the context of the Corinthian church and Corinth at that time. As this is a letter written to a specific congregation, our understanding of what Paul is saying is also reliant on our understanding of what's going on in the Corinthian church and that community at that time. Corinth in Paul's days was a Roman colony. And not only that, it was a city that was known to have fully adopted Roman culture and Roman values. It was a center of trade with lots of business and entrepreneurship going on and many of its inhabitants were very wealthy, which was a contrast to the surrounding areas. It was a society that valued status, and how you were seen by others was very important. People actively sought to increase their status through things like marriage, patronage, gaining wealth, and the building of connections. I'm sure that all their posts on social media were carefully curated to show them in their very best light. But part of the problem that Paul is addressing here is that this way of thinking, this concept of wisdom that was prevalent in Corinthian society was now making its way into the church. They were being shaped by this way of thinking and then living it out in the context of their church community because it seemed normal to them. Just as it's easy for us to bring things like negative patterns from our family of origin into a marriage relationship, it's also easy to bring the values of our society that are opposite to God, to the character of God, into our church community, unless we learn a new way of being. On the flip side, this also meant that the Corinthian church had very little impact on their surrounding culture. They didn't offer any alternative to that way of seeing the world. David Garland, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, describes it this way. Corinthian society was riddled by competitive individualism, and this ethos spilled over into the relationships in the church as wealthier members competed for followers. Socially pretentious and self-important individuals appear to have dominated the church. It's likely that they flaunted their symbols of status, wisdom, influence, and family pedigree, and looked down on those of lesser status. They appear to have wanted to preserve the social barriers of class and status that permeated their social world, 
For some, the Christian community had become simply another arena to compete for status according to the societal norms. So what was the guiding value in Corinthian society? At its core, it was the promotion of self at the expense of others. And out of this background, there grew a division in the church between the church leadership and Paul. And Paul reminds them here what's actually central to the gospel and how they're actually called to live. His response is to highlight the wisdom demonstrated in Jesus' death on the cross and show that it's opposite to these self-promoting values. He calls them to a different way of living and of being in community. How might you describe the character or values of Vancouver society today? Are there ways that the cross might invite us to a different way of living? So first point, an invitation to humility. In verses 18 to 20, Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom could not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. I find it's interesting to note that Paul's actually drawing from Old Testament teaching on wisdom in his argument here. In our passage today, we see an echo of Jeremiah 9, verses 23 to 24. This is what the Lord says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. So what does Paul mean by the wisdom of the world here? At its core, he's talking about the dominant way that people choose to live and to order their lives. They're guiding principles. Wisdom is what shows us the best way to live. And for the people of Corinth, wisdom meant climbing the social ladder, gaining status, and looking good, even at the expense of others. For them, this was the wise way to live. It was important to look out for themselves and to have the right connections. But when they brought this wisdom into the church setting, it became a big problem because that way of thinking and living is actually opposite to how Jesus calls them to live. It runs counter to the wisdom of God. One problem with the wisdom of the world is that it actually can never lead to God. We can't know God if our view of wisdom or what it's best is self-seeking. And it also gets in the way of Paul's work to build a community that was selfless, valued each person, and was built on love. In verse 20, Paul goes on to list those who would have been seen as experts at that time. The wise person, the teacher of the law, the philosopher. These were people who maybe should have known what God was like. But the truth about God and his kingdom was not something they could figure out on their own. There's a lot we can learn through our own reasoning in the areas of science, philosophy, mathematics, but knowing the ways of God is not one of these things. Verse 21 even seems to suggest that God in his wisdom purposely did not let humans discover him through their own means. In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. 
because otherwise this might just become another source of pride. We might see ourselves as gods in a way if we can reason our way to him. Gordon Fee writes, a God discovered by human wisdom will be both a projection of human fallenness and a source of human pride. And this constitutes the worship of the creature and not the creator. Instead, the wisdom of God is something we need to be shown to understand. God can only be known if he chooses to reveal himself. And the wisdom of the world, this self-seeking mentality, also causes problems in the church because it encourages a way of living that's contrary to the cross. Fee goes on to describe it in this way. The wisdom of the world seeks its own advantage no matter how much, much it hurts others. Worldly wisdom glamorizes self-exaltation and elitism, not self-emptying, comfort and ease, not suffering, personal honor and esteem, not humiliation. Such wisdom is tantamount to exalting oneself in the face of God, and it lies behind the breakdown of community. I wonder if we can relate to this at all. I know that our context is very different from that of first century Corinth, but I think it's a very human temptation to want to put ourselves before others. I was thinking about this a few weeks ago um, when you remember the supply chain disruption because of the flooding. And I remember going to the grocery store and the whole meat section was almost empty. And I admit that my temptation was to grab a bit more than I needed just to make sure that I had enough. And I didn't end up doing this, partly because my freezer is too small. But the temptation is always there to look out for, the for our own interests at the expense of others. But this is not the way of God. In verse 26, Paul goes on to invite the Corinthian Christians to remember their own humble beginnings. He writes, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. Scholars believe that the Corinthian church at the time was made up of mainly poorer or low-status people, with a few exceptions, so there were a few wealthy families. It's possible that part of the appeal of the church at that time was it was a place where everyone was accepted regardless of social status. So why are they now bringing the status-seeking mentality into the church community? Paul goes on to say in verse 27 that it was in God's wisdom that he didn't call those who were seen as great, but rather lowly to bring home the fact that God's ways are different from ours. Status in his kingdom isn't given out in the way that we like to attribute it so that no one can boast. Now the word boast here can sometimes mean to take pride in, but it might be better translated here to trust or to put one's full confidence in. So we see a call to humility here, an invitation to the Corinthian church as well as to us to choose to boast or to put our full confidence in God and his ways and not to self-promote at the expense of others. It's a warning against pride and an invitation not to try to seem better than we are or to assert our rights at all costs. But we're to imitate Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. The wisdom of the world might call us to look out for ourselves at the expense of others. The wisdom of the cross calls us to love others even at expense to ourselves. And as we turn from a self-seeking perspective, we can trust that God by his Holy Spirit will show us the good way to live. 
The wisdom of God invites us to a new life and a new community. But how? And this brings us to our second point, an invitation to recognize true wisdom. So what then is the wisdom of God according to this passage? Paul spells this out in verse 30. Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So the wisdom of God is all about right relationship with God. It's all about salvation through Jesus, nothing more, nothing less. If wisdom, as we saw earlier, is how we determine the best way to live, Jesus is the wisdom from God because he shows us a new way of living. And he makes it possible for us to live in this way by giving us righteousness, holiness, and redemption. If you remember from Justin's sermon last week, he talked about how righteousness is all about right relationship, right relationship with God and with each other. In his work on the cross, Jesus gives us a vivid demonstration of what God's wisdom looks like, caring for others even at the expense of self. I I find sometimes that maybe even my gut reaction to this is it doesn't feel like a very wise way to live. The way of the cross doesn't seem to make much sense at first. The death of a deity, a king laying down all his power, a crucified Christ doesn't make sense at all. Paul calls it a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But something has changed. When before we needed to compete to gain value and status, now Jesus has given us as a gift status in his kingdom and value in his family. And he invites us to behave in a way that lives up to this, to become who we already are. Things have been flipped. We're playing a new game now and the old rules don't apply. I wonder if you've ever played a card game or a board game with friends and found yourselves arguing about the rules. I find that usually at this point, you'd look up online to find out the official rules or maybe take out that sheet of paper that comes with the game to find out what you're supposed to do. I find that I can get pretty competitive when playing games, so I will definitely take the time to hunt up a particular rule if it will prove that I'm right. But sometimes what I've intuitively thought was the correct rule isn't actually how it was meant to be played, and I needed to learn to play a different way. Paul is pointing out that God has changed the rules of the game. It's not about a self-seeking search for status. We're called to love, to seek the good of others, because our status is already given and our future is already taken care of. And this is freeing. We have nothing we need to prove anymore. And we can trust God with our lives. How are we to live in this way? I was trying to think of an example that applies to Vancouver. And one thing that came to mind for me was that Vancouver is known to be a very lonely city. It has a reputation of that where it's really hard for newcomers to feel welcome or to get connected. Are there ways that we've let this mentality come into our church at all? I don't think that our church culture should reflect that part of Vancouver culture at all. I wonder if we tend sometimes to only try to get to know those people who are like us or maybe those who look good, or who agree with us theologically. But what if instead we greeted each person with an expectation that God would show us something of himself through them? 
Maybe that could even be part of our witness, silently praying as we meet someone that God would show us where he's working in their lives. If we believe that God's calling all people to himself, then he's certainly at work. Or what if we somehow recognize that we're standing on holy ground whenever we approach a person to whom God has given his spirit? That we have something to learn from every person we meet, not just those with theological degrees. And that hearing God's truth spoken back to us from someone who's from a different background, culture, or ethnicity from ourselves is a gift and will help us see God just a little bit more clearly. On the flip side, as we come to our community, we shouldn't feel like we need to hide our struggles or our faults to look good to be seen as spiritual or to up our status at church, as if God required this of us, or at least other Christians did. This kind of thinking is also, also out of place in Christian community. In Christ, the wisdom from God is offered to all. It's offered to the uncool and the unpopular. It's offered to the poor, to those of low status, the wisdom of God is not about power, but about giving power away. The wisdom of God is not about asserting our rights, but being like Jesus in laying down our rights for the sake of others. So if we think we're ahead of the game or deserving of special honor, we need to put that aside. Paul writes, God was pleased through the foolishness, through the seeming ridiculous nature of what was preached to save those who believe. And we are to continue to live in this way. The wisdom of God shows us a new way of life and a new way of community. And our final point, an invitation to wonder. God did something magnificent and in a very unexpected way. King David prophesied about this back in Psalm 118. He writes, the stone the builders rejected, so Jesus himself, has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 20. It's about a landowner who needed to find workers to work in his vineyard. So he goes out early in the morning and hires a bunch of workers and agrees to pay them whatever's fair, which would usually be a denarius, a typical payment for a day's labor. At noon, he goes out, a bit, he goes out again, he feel, finds he needs some more laborers and he hires a few more people. And he goes out again at around 5 p.m., so just before the end of the day, and hires a few more workers. When the day is over, he pays each of these workers a denarius. But the ones who worked since early in the morning are pretty angry about this. They think they should be paid more than, only those, who, than those who only put in an hour of labor. And the landowner replies that, well, they all agreed to work for a denarius. And he says, are you envious because I'm generous? And Jesus summarizes, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Does this story sound unfair to you? I think that my natural reaction would also to be get, to get upset. I think I should be paid more than those who only put in an hour of work. But this captures God's incredible generosity towards us, and it shows the, way that, the ways that thing, things work in his kingdom. No one got less than they deserved, but many got a whole lot more. R.T. France writes, God's grace is not limited by our idea of fairness. His gifts are far beyond what we deserve, but we find it hard to abandon our human scale, our values, our worldly wisdom in a way, especially when comparing ourselves with others 
and to accept the large-heartedness of God towards those we regard as undeserving. And somehow, this all requires a shift in perspective. It's like staring at those magic eye pictures that were popular a number of years ago. I don't know if you remember them, it was like a square with all these colors inside, and if you stare at it long enough and in the right way, like a 3D picture will pop out. We're invited to look at life differently now, to see things in light of God's grace and of His wisdom. I'm sure you know the story about the Grinch who stole Christmas. This is a story of someone else who needed to learn how to see things differently. The Grinch thinks he can stop Christmas from coming by stealing all the things he associates with Christmas. So he steals all the presents, the food, all the decorations, only to discover that Christmas was something else altogether. Dr. Seuss writes, and the Grinch with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons, it came without tags, it came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more? We can be prone to a similar confusion when it comes to understanding God's kingdom. We want to dress it up, decorate it, make it trendy and relevant, try to align it with the world's wisdom, and then we work to achieve it. Only to find when we strip it down of all of this, we're left with something even more spectacular. God didn't come with a display of glory or fame or wealth, but as a baby in a manger, and as a king who set aside his right to glory in order to give his life for us. And just like with the Grinch, this realization can change our lives as well. Our heart should also grow three sizes bigger. It's a call to conversion. God's kingdom is different than we thought before. His kingdom, it seems, means a little bit more. It's easy for us to lose sight of how revolutionary the news about Jesus and the cross really is, especially if we've been Christians most of our lives. But it's a cause to marvel at the magnificence of it, it's almost too good to be true. We can come to God as we are. We can breathe a sigh of relief knowing we don't have to prove anything. He came not to exalt the strong, but to lift up the weak. This is something I find I need to remind myself of a lot. I can get caught up in thinking that I'm always not doing enough, and I find this applies to my relationship with God as well. But God invites us to trust Him. He'll use us despite and maybe even because of all our weakness and our frailty if we lay our lives in his hand. God's wisdom is an invitation to wonder. So overall then, the wisdom of the cross invites us to a new way of life and a new way of community, one that invites humility. We don't know everything and we don't need to. God has chosen to reveal himself to us one that recognizes true wisdom. Wisdom is seen in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, a self-giving love for others. God's kingdom is not about upward but downward mobility. And one that experiences wonder, to be amazed at what God has done. In his wisdom, he made something happen that was impossible before. For everyone, weak or strong, to have a place in his family, and this is something we don't need to work for or deserve. God in his generosity desires to give it to us if we only ask. 
The light, that, the light of the wisdom that Jesus brings shows us the good way to live, and it helps to dispel the darkness of our world and its seeming wisdom. How might God's wisdom speak into your circumstances today? Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you that in Jesus you have given us the light of your wisdom. Help us to grow in living by this light in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.